Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 2nd of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we're very pleased to be joined this week by our colleague Ido Fok, who's in Ukraine, to talk about Ukrainian politics. But before we get on to that, Emily, briefly, what's been your moment of the week? I just wanted to quickly flag that the Supreme Court yesterday upheld Arizona voting restrictions. It was a 6-3 decision. So the six conservative justices all said, yes, this is fine. Three liberal justices dissented. We've spoken before on this podcast about the way in which the right to vote is being systematically chipped away at in the United States. And this is, I mean, what this says to me is that even if the Democrats could manage to get voting rights through Congress, which they have so far not managed to do, it wouldn't necessarily be upheld in the Supreme Court anyway. With that little dystopian note, Jeremy, what what was your moment from the past week? Mine is also a North American moment of the week, but I think it's important to note it, and that's the heat wave in the northwestern United States and Western Canada, which has been absolutely astonishing. You know, we see these sorts of events every single year now, these these parts of the world that are not used to the sorts of heat that they're experiencing. And you had it last year, for example, in Siberia and in the melting of the peat bogs there, which was very worrying. And this year we've seen over three successive days, Canada's heat record was broken one day after the next going higher and higher and higher, reaching a peak of 49.6 degrees centigrade in Lytton in British Columbia. And there have been some terrible human stories out of this. Some hundreds of people are estimated to have died uh, directly or indirectly because of the heat. I was speaking to a friend of mine in Vancouver who was saying essentially she doesn't know how she'd cope if she didn't have a basement to basically cower in, in from the heat. You know, these these are temp- temperatures that are more commonly recorded at the peak of summer in the Sahara Desert, not in Canada. And I think it just goes to show, first of all, the, the, the speed at which the climate crisis is accelerating, but also how poorly prepared even wealthy and highly developed parts of the world are to deal with, with this, let alone the global south. So I think it's just a very scary reminder of the the broader crisis facing us. So with that, we're very pleased, as I said, to be joined by Ido, who is currently in Odessa on the Black Sea. Hi, Ido. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. We're very pleased to have you on. Why don't you start by telling us what you've been up to in Ukraine and what you've been finding out, because it's an interesting time there. I was invited to the Leopolis uh, Jazz Festival in Lviv, which is in Western Ukraine. 
The Leopolis Jazz Festival is, from what I hear, one of the preeminent events for the Ukrainian elite to, to gather. You have various, very wealthy people, politicians, TV anchors, businessmen, oligarchs, all sort of converging and, and, and meeting with each other. It's a very glamorous affair, especially in the VIP event, which you start sort of ascending over the people just watching it on a screen and you enter into this very kind of exclusive world. I was invited to, to go there and to speak to various officials, various local politicians, former diplomats, that, that sort of thing about the mood in Ukraine, how people are feeling, the problems the country is facing and the, the political issues that are facing Ukraine at the moment. And then, as I said, you're now in Odessa. What have you been up to there? Well, I mostly wanted to go to Odessa because it's along with Lviv, the last big city in Ukraine that I hadn't been to. It's just an incredibly different place to to Lviv and to some of the other cities in, in Ukraine. It's got a fascinatingly storied history. Uh, Isaac Babel, the writer, was from Odessa, as was Lev Bronstein, who most of you will know as Trotsky. And it's got a really interesting history as a kind of Jewish mafia town, a, a Black Sea cosmopolitan port. Um, and I'm hoping to to write a story talking about Odessa and, and Lviv and what that says about Ukrainian nationhood. Well, so talk about that for a bit. You know, what what is the general political mood? Obviously, when we think about, I think often when we here in, in D.C. or in London, Berlin, think about Ukraine, we think about it vis-a-vis -vis its conflict with Russia. And obviously earlier this year, it, it did look like that, that conflict might escalate. But on the ground in the country, what are the political concerns? What's the political mood? I think what surprised me was how, in, in talking to officials, talking to politicians, um, uh, diplomats and so on, what surprised me was how low down the list of priorities the conflict with Russia, which has been ongoing since 2014, is. And I don't mean that in the sense that it doesn't matter and that they've forgotten about the conflict, but just in terms of its immediacy, it's just not there in terms of how people think about the problems facing Ukraine. And, and that is basically because the conflict is more or less frozen in terms of how uh, it's developing on, on a day-to-day -day or month-to-month -month basis. Crimea has been annexed from Ukraine by Russia, and I mean, very few people here have any illusions about ever getting that back um, in, the, in the short to medium term, um, certainly not without significant political change in Russia and possibly in Ukraine also. And the hotter war with the separatist authorities and, and also Russian troops in Donetsk and um, Luhansk is, is basically, in, ter in territorial terms, mostly stable. There are still soldiers who die on both sides, a few a month, but by and large, it's a more or less frozen conflict. And so issues around corruption, around the economy, around economic growth are much more present in people's minds. And that doesn't mean that the war has gone away, and it doesn't mean it couldn't get catapulted back to the top of the agenda if it were to escalate. As you alluded to, in April, there was a troop buildup on the Russian border, which some Ukrainians and some analysts feared might be the prelude to, a, to another Russian invasion. That didn't transpire. And so the threat of that is always there. But in immediate terms, people are concerned much more about corruption, about the rule of law, about the buying off of the judicial system, about economic competition, the health of Ukraine's democracy than they are about the war. And what about 
I mean, President Volodymyr Zelensky came to power rather surprisingly, given that he was previously known for playing a Ukrainian president on a TV comedy, came to power promising action on corruption. And, and as a sort of you know, political outsider, supposedly, he was going to shake up the comfortable oligarchies that held sway and hold sway in the country. We're what, is it two years on now into his presidency? What's the sense of how he's doing? He's always been viewed as quite close to an oligarch called uh, Igor Kolomoisky, who was a shareholder in Privat Bank, which was nationalised after investigators uncovered fraud worth over $5 billion. And he's recently been put under US sanctions for alleged corruption and anti-democratic activities while he was governor of the Danube region. It's not as if he was kind of ever viewed as completely independent of Ukraine's oligarchy, which is still very, very strong, which still has a very strong uh, hold and on, on the politics and the economy of the country, although it's not fair to say that it entirely controls the country. But nonetheless, the oligarchs have a huge, a huge hold and a huge influence. So he's promised a so-called new de-oligarchization law, which will create a list of people who fit three or four criteria. If they hold assets worth over $80 million, are involved in politics, have considerable media influence, or benefit from monopolies, three or four of those, they will be added to this list. And that's viewed as an attempt to take on Ukraine's entrenched oligarchy, which basically every president, every president comes to power promising to change, and very often people are left disappointed. Now, there's a fair amount of criticism of this. I've heard people say that he's just looking for quick fixes for a sort of easy narrative to run for re-election on in, I think, two years. And there's also fear that the law, because it's relatively vague and the criteria are fairly open, might be applied selectively, so harshly towards opponents of the government and leniently towards friends of, of the government. But nonetheless, there is this kind of at least for the moment, rhetorical attempts to uh, to combat oligarchy. And in fact, there are some encouraging preliminary signs, um, particularly because Zelensky has shown a willingness to prosecute Kolomoisky and to put a bit of distance between him and Kolomoisky, which shows that he is not entirely enthralled to the oligarchs he is viewed by many as close to. And did you detect any optimism about the direction of this, was it de-oligarchization? <laughs> uh, I might have, got, might have got that wrong. In, in, in Lviv, particularly, from the political and media and cultural figures that you spoke to? Bluntly, there is a very strong overlap between oligarchs, whether they're national or local. A lot of oligarchs have kind of local networks. So they, they are kind of local tycoons on the regional or city or blast level. And there is a lot of overlap between those people and people who go into politics. Quite often what you find is, I mean, not just oligarchs, also successful business people, but, you know, a very wealthy elite. They might go from business to a governorship or from business to parliament or from parliament to business and so on. So there are very strongly entrenched interests, which very often overlap. And taking on those interests is is very difficult because there are a lot of divisions in Ukraine on a regional level between obviously East and West, which is fairly well documented, but also between different cities, between different local patronage networks and, and kind of power bases at a regional or local level and the centre. And those officials 
very often are worried about attempts to limit to limit their influence. So we've been discussing, you know, your impressions of the mood on the ground, but you've also been speaking to people on the ground so we can hear directly from them. So why don't you tell us a bit about the person from whom we're about to hear? I spoke to Vasil Filipchuk at some length. He's a former Ukrainian diplomat who now runs a think tank called the International Center for Policy Studies in Kyiv. And I had a chat to him about the biggest challenges facing Ukraine. The state is really fragile. The state is divided. The state is in many controversies. The state has no viable and clear model of how it's going to function in the future, how it's going to build up relation between regions and, and, and central authorities. The state has no model of economic development. We still have no clarity what is our part in international division of labor. We just uh, export or uh, grain, human capital, like IT specialist, and that's all. So country is still in search, despite we have 30 years of independence and we are going to celebrate it in, 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 in August. Country has still no consensus of who we are, what we are, what we are after, where we are going to. We thought, and it was my personal uh, idea, that European integration, accession to EU can be kind of national goal. But unfortunately, it's, it's not anymore as we signed association agreement without prospective membership. Moreover, um, our agreement with the EU basically clearly mentions we have neither candidate status nor perspective of getting this as long as this agreement functions. So European integration didn't become kind of national idea. What is a national idea? Not clear. The thing that I find most interesting about that clip is the way that he talks about Ukraine not having yet found its place in the international order. He mentions that it's coming up to 30 years since Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union. It's been a difficult period and and still questions, not least that big one about its relationship with the rest of Europe, remain unanswered. Did that surprise you? And and how widespread is that sense that, 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 that the country's path is so unclear? It didn't surprise me at all. It's no secret that Ukraine has a very tough time formulating a national narrative, a national goal to which can unite the various different groups uh, within the country, in particular the division between the West and the centre and the East of Ukraine, between Ukrainian speakers predominantly in the West and Russian speakers predominantly in the centre and the East of the country. That's no secret at all. And in fact, Vasil alludes to that problem. He talks about European integration, in his view, potentially serving as a kind of unifying national goal, but he's become disillusioned and he doesn't think that can really work. And in fact, uh, officials here and, and kind of politicians are very disillusioned. They think that Ukraine is, has, has very many problems, but it, it doesn't have a kind of national story to tell itself. It doesn't really have a story which can unite Ukrainians of different stripes, of different ethnicities, of different language groups. Talk to people about what it means to be Ukrainian in, say, Lviv, which is in the west of the country, which is wasn't ever part of the Russian Empire, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and was annexed by the Soviet Union in 1945. And so very much kind of Central Europe uh, as opposed to... Russian or, or, or the, the uh, 
kind of having a sense of having been part of the Russian Empire. And you'll get a very different answer to what would happen if you ask people, say, where I am in Odessa, which was founded by Catherine the Great, where people speak Russian, where which which was part of the of the Russian Empire and has very strong links with the rest of of this part of the world. And so that's a that's a very tough question, which no one really has an answer to. For a while, it seemed like Zelensky might be able to unite both sides, in particular because he is a Russian speaker. He was, as, as some of our listeners will know, he was often on the Berbi Canal, the Russian state TV channel, kind of speaking Russian, being being funny, being a dramatist, comedian in Russian. Um, and so there was some hope that he might be able to unite Ukrainian and Russian speakers. But many people at this point are quite disillusioned and don't think that either don't think that he's done it right or don't think that it's possible at all. Uh, the interesting thing to me is that it's not as though there aren't other countries in the world where people speak different languages that and nevertheless, you know, are, are all still Swiss or all still Belgian, or I guess you could say all still Canadian, although there is a French Canadian separatist movement. So maybe that's a bad example, but, but it doesn't necessarily need to like doom the country. I think and maybe you disagree, Ido, but what ends up happening with a certain with certain national narratives, and this is not at all specific to Ukraine, certain national narratives end up really falling back on ethno-nationalism, right, which tends to have these far-right, very exclusionary strains. And then it's like, well, why aren't you all buying into our, our version of this nationalism? It's, it's Well, I can't because it's, it's exclusive. I guess what I'm saying is the fact that there are different languages doesn't necessarily need to doom the country, right? Unless people go all in on saying, yes, it has to be the language. Yes, it has to be this particular set of historical facts that you believe in or that you, you know, hold up as important. Yes, you have to, you have to take our narrative or, or bust. There, there, there could, there is a world in which Ukraine could have a pluralistic, inclusive nationalism. So, so I completely agree. And there are two things there. So the first is that it's obviously true that nationhood is not exclusively related to language. And that's clearly the case when you cited, you know, Belgium, which isn't a real country, but anyway, sorry, sorry, Belgium, no, I'm joking. Switzerland and Canada, and, you know, there, there are plenty of examples too, also lots of non-Western examples. But what is, I think, quite different about Ukraine is, first of all, how entrenched Russian is. And second of all, that there is a very powerful neighbor which is willing to exploit these divisions and promote a narrative that you, that Ukrainians are not a real people, that Ukraine is not a legitimate state, um, that Russian-speaking Ukrainians are just Russians. That Ukrainian isn't even a real language, right? That they've just made that up to, to justify having this country. Yes, it's a great point, you know. Perhaps Russian speakers and, and Russians are one people artificially divided and they should be divided from Ukrainian speakers and so on. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is... And that's something that I think is un pretty much unique to Ukraine. Um, and, you know, if you had, I don't know, if France was being revanchist towards French-speaking French Swiss people, then I think maybe you might see, possibly you might see some of the same divisions and the same dynamics playing out, which of course they don't. So that's the first thing. The second is what you spoke about, this kind of exclusive, this idea that nationhood is is very related to the language. And I, I think that's a that's a real problem in Ukraine. Since 2014, there's been a real attempt to marginalize the Russian language in Ukraine. So broadcasters now are more or less banned from broadcasting uh, the vast majority of their content in Russian. Most written content has to be in Ukrainian. A 
and there were various attempts to kind of sideline the Russian language. To an extent, this is understandable because there is clearly this project by Russia to exploit the divisions between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers in Ukraine to undermine Ukraine's statehood. But on the other hand, there are still millions of Ukrainians who are Russian speakers who are perfectly comfortable in their identity as Ukrainians, but who just happen to speak Russian to one another to to use the Russian language, and who are not any less Ukrainian for it. And that's mostly the case in cities like Odessa and uh, like Kharkiv and, and places like that in, in the centre and the east of the country. I've got to say, there is something very odd about being here and seeing everything written in Ukrainian, which is pretty close to Russian, but not exactly the same. But yet, the spoken language being pretty much exclusively Russian. And I, I'm not sure if I can think of a similar dynamic anywhere else in the world in terms of a language which is the kind of majority language in terms of how people actually interact with one another on a spoken or kind of in interpersonal relations. And yet, kind of officially, in terms of shops or government communications and so on, the language is pretty much exclusively another language. I'm not sure if I can think of an equivalent. And all that to say that there, there clearly has to be some attempt at some point to bring Russian-speaking Ukrainians into a national narrative which includes them. And I don't think that having Ukrainian everywhere necessarily excludes Russian-speaking Ukrainians, but it's clearly a fairly one-sided approach to how to create national unity. As, as you've been speaking, I've been thinking a bit about other examples like that elsewhere in the world. And I mean, there are other cases of autocratic nationalists trying to tell people who they believe belong to the ethnicity or the language group of the country they represent, but live in another country that they don't truly belong where they are. And you do have some cases like that. For example, Orban has appealed to Hungarians in Romania or ethnic or linguistic Hungarians in Romania. Erdogan has uh, points intimated that Turks in Germany are truly Turkish rather than German, or that, or that they aren't they aren't proper Germans. They can't be proper Germans, and yet I think that's where the point about the proximity of Russia and the size differential and the power differential is so crucial. Because to have not just uh, an autocratic leader telling parts of your own population that, but then to have that leader massing troops on your border, uh, you know, in a, and 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 wielding far more power than you ever can really changes the dynamic. And, and I think you, ca- you capture well Ukraine's unique situation with that observation. On that point, you also get back to what you were talking about before, which was um, about Ukraine's place in the world. And what is, I think, pretty much unique about Ukraine is this intersection between the divisions within the country that are exploited by a much bigger, much more powerful neighbor, not only kind of rhetorically comparing to the examples that you spoke about, but also militarily. I mean, Russia has annexed a part of Ukraine which was, for the vast majority, populated by Russian speakers. So these divisions kind of, they start out as linguistic divisions and they end up as kind of very marked territorial changes and a, a military occupation and a military invasion. I mean, it would be as though like there were still an Austro-Hungarian empire on the Czech border, right? And like the Czechs are, were, were trying to like reassert their nationhood through the language, right? Like replaying this thing that happened centuries ago today because there's this this former empire that, that won't leave you be. 
On the point about the kind of cohesion or otherwise of Ukraine as a, a national group or as a, as, a, as a national entity, are you seeing many expressions of pride in the Ukrainian team? And what are you expecting from the match against England tomorrow? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening to this might be planning to watch that from a football point of view. But it, d- does it act as a, as a rallying point for a sort of, uh, you know, the, the national pride in a, in a country that has had many difficulties in recent years and has had its very legitimacy as a separate country challenged by a powerful neighbour? That's something I found really interesting while I've, while I've been here. So I watched first England and then the first half of Ukraine-Sweden, and I'm afraid I didn't watch the second half because that was simply too much football for one day. But I did watch it in this kind of town centre with a big screen. I watched it in Odessa, which is Russian-speaking, and there were plenty of people wearing Ukrainian jerseys. They sung the national anthem, and then they shouted to each other, Slava Ukraini, Gorin Slava, like um, kind of glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, which is a national slash nationalist slogan which in fact there was a lot of controversy about with this with these euros and our colleague jonathan Liu wrote quite a good piece exploring this which you can read in, in this week's ns but yeah it, it definitely does seem like the football team is a rallying is a kind of important symbol of national unity to this country which really doesn't have all that many it sounds like you're saying that you would like them to beat england tomorrow and continue to unite the nation uh, well, I think we're doing a <laughs> classic uh, journalistic trick of putting classic. words in my mouth. Uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow, but I'd imagine I'm going to be pretty much the only England supporter in this town. But I, I look forward to robust debate about the merits of both teams. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Well, that brings us to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our You Ask Us question this week is, what difference has the Biden administration meant for, for Ukraine? And 
This refers, of course, to the fact that there can be few European countries that were quite as glad to see the back of Donald Trump as was Ukraine. As came across in the his impeachment, he was clearly willing to blackmail Ukraine. He had this sympathy for Vladimir Putin and for Putin's might is right approach, which characterizes the Russian policy towards Ukraine. And so one would imagine there would be a great deal of relief in Kiev and other Ukrainian cities and regions when Donald Trump was defeated and when Biden became president. And so I'd love to hear from both of you how much you think that's been borne out by the realities of the Biden era. I'm starting with you, Emily. What's the perspective in Washington on how the American policy on Ukraine has changed, if at all, in that period? So it's not just that Biden's not Trump. It's that when he was in the Obama White House, he was like Mr. Ukraine, right? He, he incredibly committed to the country and to the, you know, its right to its its independence, really. You know, I think that the Biden administration has given Ukraine what you can and should expect from an American administration toward a country to whom it's made historic security promises, aid, and also lectures on corruption and rule of law. I have an interview up now on newstatesman.com with Senator Jean Shaheen, who is the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee's subcommittee on Europe. And she and two of her colleagues, one of whom is a Republican, went to Ukraine earlier at the beginning of last month, as well as Georgia and Lithuania, and, and basically said, you know, we're both parties are committed to Ukraine, but we expect you to continue to work on tackling corruption and to moving ahead in, in terms of establishing your democratic institutions. And, and, and I think I think that's that's true. And there is commitment from both parties, most people in both parties to support Ukraine in that way. But the other reality is that Ukraine is not getting into NATO. It does not look like that is going to happen in the near future, even the medium term future, which is what Ukraine wants, right? Or what they like successive leaders have said that they want and expect. And so at a certain point, uh, one wonders, like, is, is it enough? Is, is assistance and reaffirming words, is that enough for Washington to provide to Ukraine? The other thing that I know is a phenomenon is that Central and Eastern Europe, there is some sense in Central and Eastern Europe that, you know, Biden went to the UK and Biden went to Brussels and Biden went to Geneva to meet Putin, but Biden didn't bother with Central or Eastern Europe. I guess to this, I would say two things. The first is that while the Trump administration did engage with particularly Central Europe, it was done in a really transactional way. The Biden administration will engage with this region, but it will be, you know, a, a bit of a slog, right? By which I mean, it'll be, you know, there's going to be lecturing about, about values and human rights and mm. democracy. The other thing I would say, because I know that Nord Stream 2 in particular, is contentious, and that there's a sense of betrayal that the Biden administration said, basically said, okay, yes, finish the pipeline. But I guess my question is, like, what did they want the Biden administration to do? Because short of completely blowing up our relationship with Germany, which nobody in Washington wants to do, like so many US administrations at this point have, not so many, three, have said, you know, don't, don't do this. And Germany's basically said, no, we're going ahead with it. What, is this is this for the United States to say no, or is that is your issue with Germany for going ahead and saying yes? I wonder if this is also partly the wider Biden administration approach of saying, at the end of the day, there are some things that Europe just has to sort out amongst itself. Yeah, and one more thing that I would say to this is that, and we've spoken about this before on this podcast. I don't think that the Biden administration wants to discourage Europe from from having a robust foreign policy and security policy. But what that means is that we're going to disagree on on more areas. 
right? Like obviously if the EU and these various countries that make up the EU and the UK assert themselves more on the global stage and, and are more robust partners to the US, that also means that they're going to have their own opinions, right? And, and their own approaches to the world. And so you kind of, uh, in the US, we have to kind of appreciate that we can't have it both ways, right? We can't have these robust partnerships and also dictate the terms of everyone. Totally. And I think that's something that actually all three of us have, have sort of touched on in our writing in the, in the last few weeks. Ido, what's the perspective from Ukraine? Do, do people there feel that things have improved since Biden became president or that it's made much of a difference at all? I think like in the rest of Europe, there is a sense that Biden is much more reliable. You know where he stands. He can be a, relied on to avoid the kind of sycophancy that we frequently saw from Trump towards Putin, who obviously is very strongly disliked in Ukraine for obvious reasons. Having said that, as Emily has alluded to, Ukraine is not in NATO and it probably won't be anytime soon. That raises a whole bunch of questions as to how much support Ukraine can realistically expect from the West, from the US, from Germany, given all these issues which we've spoken about. And I suppose it comes back to what we were talking about before. I, I spoke to, to one diplomat who told me that if you exclude the Russian separatist regions and Crimea, the split, the pro-anti-Russian split in Ukraine is probably something like 70% pro-Ukrainian and 30% pro-Russian. And if you include uh, Crimea and the pro-Russian separatist regions, you get pretty much 50-50. Now, I don't think that's because, bluntly, Ukrainians are stupid and they think that life in Russia is better than it is in the West because most Ukrainians can clearly see that that is not the case, that life in Russia is much closer to their own than life in Germany is. But I do think that probably reflects a certain sense of realism on their, on their behalf that they can expect some sort of close relationship with Russia in the short or medium term that they simply cannot expect from the West because they are probably not going to join the EU, they're probably not going to join NATO, and if they made a serious attempt to try, Russia would in some way interfere. Obviously, the consequences of previous Russian interference interference has been pretty catastrophic. And I think that that speaks to a kind of sense of realism on behalf of some Ukrainians, not especially kind of nostalgia or, you know, nostalgia for the Soviet Union or kind of rosy tinted views of Slavic brotherhood between Russia and Ukraine, but just a, a kind of real sense of realism about where their country is and how committed West, big Western powers are in concrete terms to its defence. Well, thank you very much, Ido, for those perspectives on Ukraine. And listeners who want to read more should absolutely read Ido's dispatch from Lviv on his findings and his conversations there. And should also subscribe to the World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review, where Ido, as listeners will know, writes most of the Monday preview issues that look ahead to the week in world affairs. And indeed, he'll be writing on Mondays on the very worrying rise in COVID cases across the border from Ukraine and Russia. So don't forget to subscribe to that at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Well, our final section is the one where we look ahead to the next seven days in world affairs. And I'd like to invite Ido to tell us what he'll be looking ahead to. I think I'm going to pick that the first batch of COVID-19 vaccines is going to arrive in Africa 
from uh, next week from the US. Joe Biden's administration announced that it would donate 500 million Pfizer vaccines to the 100 lowest income countries in the world. And so those first doses of, I think, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson will arrive in Africa from next week. Now, obviously, this is very significant. Africa has, I think, on the whole continent, fully inoculated just 1% of its population, which is very, very low. This is largely to do with the distribution of vaccines because they've, by and large, vaccines have gone to either countries which are willing to pay more for them or the countries where they're being produced. And unfortunately, that means that Africa, which is both unable to really spend very much money on vaccines and also isn't really producing any, hasn't gotten very many of them at all. And that spells potential trouble because, as we saw in India, for instance, it is very, very possible that countries which had been spared initial waves of the virus can get it very, very, very badly. And in fact, we had a graph, I think, this week in the NS talking about how cases are surging in Africa. This probably won't be enough to really get the whole continent to full herd immunity, but uh, it's definitely a good start and it's definitely better than it's been going recently, uh, albeit limited, but some good news. And Emily, what are you looking ahead to? Well, I will also be watching the Euros and, of course, celebrating July 4th and May, our, our independence from my employer's country. But I will be watching the wind down of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. As listeners will remember, Joe Biden earlier this year announced that the that U.S. troops would be out of Afghanistan by September 11th. But Actually, they're wrapping up in the next few days. Troops are have left Bagram Air Base, but reportedly as many as a thousand could remain to assist the embassy in Kabul. So I guess what I will be watching is one, to what extent this is actually a withdrawal, right? Like a thousand troops is still, if you imagine those being your your family members, your friends, your your cousins, right? Um, that's not an insig- not an insignificant amount of Americans in a foreign country. And two, just what this means for Afghanistan and what happens once once US troops are gone. And what about you, Jeremy? I will be paying attention to the ongoing story of the heat wave because I think it seems like that will continue. We've, we're only at the start of the, the season where we usually see these around the world. But more specifically, I'll also be paying attention to the G20 finance ministers and central governors are meeting in Venice under the Italian presidency of the G20 this year on Friday and Saturday next week, where they will be discussing various topics, including the proposal that came out of the G7 for a global minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. And of course, with the G7 countries themselves representing an ever smaller overall share of global GDP, the success of these sorts of initiatives also depends in binding in other rising economies, many of which are represented in the G20, uh, and perhaps most notably India and China. And so we might get a sense of the extent to which the minimum global corporate tax rate will be backed by those countries and the extent to which it can become a truly global norm. So I think that's going to be worth watching as the next chapter in that interesting story. So with that, I'd just like to remind everyone that you can read all of the pieces that we've mentioned on this week's podcast on the New Statesman, newstatesman.com. And we will put uh, Ido's piece on Ukraine and a couple of the others mentioned on the website page for this podcast episode, which along with all previous episodes of The World Review, you can find at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. With that, we should also thank Ido, sometime co-host of this podcast and also distinguished guest for joining us today. Ido, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be in the second category this time. As a reminder, if you like this podcast, you can and should leave a review. 
tell your friends. Like it. Subscribe. Doesn't have to be a friend. You can, as I've said almost every week, you can also tell your enemies about the New States in the World Review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.